Two more earthquakes have struck Afghanistan this morning, bringing it to a total of seven earthquakes and multiple aftershocks over the past eight days. Dozens of villages are affected, some entirely flattened. Those who have survived have lost everything. In the early hours of October 7th, a powerful earthquake shook Herat province in western Afghanistan. It was followed by multiple aftershocks and a second strong earthquake on October 11th. Entire villages across western Afghanistan have been destroyed and over a thousand people lost their lives. And out of the rubble and dust, a shocking statistic. According to the United Nations, women and children make up the vast majority of the dead and injured. To understand why, a new report co-published by the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security and the Peace Research Institute Oslo sheds light on the plight of Afghan women. Its conclusion is simple. Afghanistan is the worst place on earth for women and girls. Launched on October 24th, the Women, Peace and Security Index measures women's inclusion, justice and security in 177 countries using 13 indicators to measure women's status, ranging from education and employment to laws and organized violence. The report provides alarming figures for Afghanistan, where women are being erased from public life. Today, I speak to Torun Trigestad, PRIO's deputy director and head of its Center for Gender, Peace and Security. And we are joined by Fozia Kufi, former deputy speaker of the Afghan parliament the first woman to hold that role, who sat at the negotiating table with the Taliban in 2021. She's also the author of a memoir, The Favorite Daughter. I am Arno Siad, and you're listening to Prio's Peace in a Pod. Let me start, Fozia, by asking you about these earthquakes that have hit Afghanistan in the last few days and weeks. Many women and children amongst the dead and over 40,000 people impacted. Are you in touch with relatives on the ground and are they okay? Yes, um, absolutely. Um, the events uh, that unfolded uh, last week in Afghanistan, Herat province that uh, hit many um, places and it continued to actually, you know, hit places and, and take lives. And because um, women were in their houses mainly, um, so the main victims or the main, uh, you know, ca the casualties, the main casualties are actually women and uh, children. I am in contact with uh, the community, with a lot of people on the ground. We are trying to provide them with um, whatever support uh, we can. Obviously, there is a devastating uh, situation, especially in terms of the mental health, because from families, they totally lost, uh, like the whole family is, uh, has lost a member of family and only one survivor. And the sad part of it is that with the, you know, news uh, of other catastrophes around the world and violence, uh, this is not picking up a lot of news um, around the world. That also puts people in a situation that they think they're forgotten. Of course, you're referring to... Uh what's unraveling right now in Gaza and, and in Israel. But to pick up on what you said about uh, women and children being the majority of casualties, UNICEF said that more than 90% of those who died in the, the earthquakes 
where women and children. And this is, of course, happening on top of years of conflict and poverty in Afghanistan. For the third year in a row, in the Women, Peace and Security Index, the country ranks worst in the world to be a woman. Torun, what does the report tell us about Afghan women and girls? Well, first of all, it tells us that women and girls in Afghanistan is in a dire situation. The index is ranking 177 countries, and these are the countries for which statistics and comparable data are available. And as you point out, Afghanistan is ranked at the very bottom of the index for the third time. And Afghanistan has actually been among the countries in the bottom since the inaugural index back in, in 2017. And mind you, the data that we have used for the ranking of Afghanistan in this new edition of the index is actually from before Taliban took control over the country in August 2021. So this means that there are now even more restrictive policies being introduced, depriving Afghan women of their basic human rights and, and freedoms. So Afghan women no longer have full access to work, to education and to health services. And they are no longer free to participate in public life and, and politics. So, yes, the situation for Afghan women right here and now is actually even worse than what we can read out of the index. Right. And, and Fozia, of course, you have first-hand experience of what Torun just laid out. I want to ask you about your experience as an Afghan woman. You wrote in your memoir, even the day I was born, I was supposed to die. It's where your book and really your story begins. Can you tell us about what you meant by that? Yes. I mean, as a woman, when you are born in Afghanistan, you are basically in the loss of identity. Your family will not own you because they think you are the wife of somebody once you grow up. And so you you all in this struggling in the loss of identity and continuously you're supposed to struggle with, you know, proving yourself time and again that you are your own identity, that you have the ability to represent your family, to represent your country, to present your abilities, your own self. And once you are married, then the husband will regard you as the daughter of somebody, not your own. So, yes, um, when I was born, um, my family expected me to be a boy and not a girl. Despite my mother's, you know, uh, as a woman, as an illiterate woman, she was basically leading our family and she wanted, always she wanted to have a daughter, but my father didn't want to have a girl. So my mother wanted to gain the love of my father and therefore she wanted to have a son, a child. And I was a girl, obviously, and they put me outside to die. And that sense of being invisible and, uh, you know, being nobody gave me that uh, passion and determination and probably the inner struggle to prove myself always. And I think that's the struggle of every woman around the world. In my country, it's more because even if you are strong, you are capable, you're talented, you're educated as a woman, you have to really work harder, triple times, four times to prove your capacities. This is more in Afghanistan. So I was over the last years of my career and since my childhood, I had to like prove myself time and again and be in a race with myself to prove my ability because I was an unwanted child in the first day. And when you are unwanted, You know, you want to really prove your ability and make yourself wanted. And I know that every woman in Afghanistan, as Tarun said, right now feel unwanted, feel they are a burden on their family or they are a burden on the, uh, on the society because they think they, their ability is not being used and consumed by the country. 
you talk about being the unwanted child, of being a burden, and it echoes the story of so many Afghan baby girls. The Women, Peace and Security Index refers to it as the son bias. It's one of the indicators used to measure women and girls' well-being. Torun, I'd like to ask you about some of the key indicators used in the index. What are you looking at? Well, our index is uh, the only one that tries to bring together into one single comparable measure indicators of women's inclusion, justice and security. So we are looking at 13 different indicators to measure how countries are performing on these three dimensions. And on the first dimension, women's inclusion, we are looking at women's inclusion in education, in the financial sector, in employment. We are looking at cell phone use and we are looking at women's inclusion in, in politics, in parliaments. And on the second dimension, that relates to justice, we are looking at how countries perform on the absence of legal discrimination against women, meaning barriers in the laws. We are looking at access to justice for women. How easily can they bring cases to court? Are the trials free and fair? And we are looking at maternal mortality and the sun bias, as you mentioned. And finally, on the third dimension, security. We are looking at how countries perform on the prevalence of intimate partner violence, community safety, political violence targeting women in particular, and women's proximity to conflict. So there are a number of indicators that we are looking into. Right. And of course, uh, Afghanistan does not score well on any of these indicators, as we understand. But I want to pick up on one indicator that Torun just mentioned, inclusion, in particular, women in politics and parliament, as you said. And Fozia, I want to go back to your story, which is like that of many Afghan women, one of survival, not just as a woman, but as a powerful political figure. So I'd like to ask you about your journey from that unwanted child to being the first female deputy speaker of the Afghan parliament. Yes, my story, um, uh, Arnaud, is the story uh, of probably one of the success stories of um, from being a survivor to then being um, probably a champion or role model, what you call it, for many women in Afghanistan. But there are hundreds and thousands of unheard stories like me who have, you know, been unheard and hidden of um, discrimination, of being invisible, of being unwanted. The reason I actually, you know, um, managed to bring my story forward and um, fulfill my inner, you know, desire for making myself visible and through myself, visibility, make the story of hundreds of uh, thousands of other women visible, basically goes to my mother. Uh, as I said, my mother was an uh, illiterate woman. You know, she was the second wife out of seven wives of my father. But she was always behind me. She was always supporting me. And when I was a child and I was continuously uh, in pursuit of education, she would look at me and say, you will be somebody in the future. I think that trust that she built on me gave me the, you know, the moral support that I will be somebody in the future. My political family as well um, played a role. Um, my father was a member of parliament. I was three years old when he was killed by Mujahideen. I lost my five uh, brothers in the war. I lost my husband um, who was uh, imprisoned by Taliban and he died as a consequence. I think whatever has gone uh, in my life um, gave me the, the reason to change uh, things that I faced and um, um, it actually impacted my life. I wanted to change that for other women so that they don't experience the same. So basically my struggle for 
gender equity in Afghanistan is not because it's a politically correct thing to do or it's fashionable, but because I have gone through every step of discrimination and I have faced it with my bones and skin and I didn't want other women to go through this. All right. But as you mentioned, uh, you came from a political family and your own story as a politician is quite extraordinary. I mean, it took you all the way to the negotiating table with the Taliban in 2021 in Doha. And I want to ask you in particular about that. Earlier this year in an op-ed on the New York Times, you said the world must cease any further contact with the Taliban and intensify engagement with Afghan opposition groups, especially women's rights groups. So you once said dialogue and engagement politically with the Taliban is a solution. That was back in 2012. So are you saying now that we should simply not talk to them? Yes, as you rightly said, I um, actually I lost my father in the peace talks. Uh, he went to negotiate with jihadi groups and he was killed. He was basically attacked from a distance and he lost his life when he was on his way for a peace mission. So I lost, I actually paid also for, you know, our desire for peace as well. Although as, uh, you know, Taliban actually attacked me several times, they put my husband in jail, but I still wanted to talk to Taliban because over the last 20 years, I have seen many of my friends, people that I knew, and I know that they will actually be a capacity, they will be a talent, they are a brain that could change Afghanistan in so many ways. I lost them in the war. I lost my professor um, from the university, a very prominent woman who was a law professor. Her name was Amida Barmaki. Her family and her husband were killed in a suicide bombing in one of the, uh, you know, the in 2009, I guess, or 2010, in one of the supermarkets. I knew many people from my family, extended family, who lost lives. Otherwise, they would have been like, you know, very young, talented, um, future leaders in, in their own field for Afghanistan. So I came to this understanding that for how long? And it's not only the lives that actually were lost. It's also the opportunity that were taken away from people of Afghanistan. So that's why I got engaged with Taliban, with the hope that we will be able to bring a government, that Taliban will be one part of it. And uh, the rest of the society, including the women, uh, you know, ethnic groups, um, religious minorities, etc., will be the other part of the government. So government that is acceptable by people, by all sides, including the Taliban. However, we know that when the former president fled from Afghanistan, the Taliban returned to power. And since they have returned to power, they continue to impose their restrictive measures on the population, especially on women. Now, what I believe is that actually... You know, there should be some level of accountability before we go to an actual process of negotiation with the Taliban for formation of a government, of uh, inclusive government. Um, I must say that it's actually the Taliban who do not want to talk with other groups, including the women. The Taliban um, have not kept their promise uh, that they will respect women's rights. And we know that, as Tarun mentioned, things have got even worse day by day for women. And Afghanistan have become an open prison. I don't, I'm not saying that we should not talk with Taliban. What I'm saying is that there should be certain principles um, that, you know, we should lay out as international community and as women groups in Afghanistan and then hold Taliban accountable for those principles because otherwise, over the last two years, engagement with Taliban did not really produce anything tangible in the interest of people of Afghanistan and especially women. So I think there should be some level of pressure to hold Taliban accountable for what they have promised during uh, Doha negotiation and before that. And then bring them to the negotiation table, like force them to come to the negotiation table and talk to us. 
Right. And you mentioned opportunities taken away from uh, Afghan people. And I'm thinking, of course, for Afghan girls and women, that has been education, where they're basically banned from accessing schools. And in fact, education is one of the key indicators in the Women, Peace and Security Index. And Fozia, I'd like to ask you about reports of underground secret classrooms defying the bans on female education imposed by the Taliban. Yourself, back in 1997, you started a secret school as well. So I'd like to ask you, what was that like? And how widespread do you think these secret classrooms are? Yeah, um, I mean, it's heartbreaking to see that history is always taking women of Afghanistan as a hostage and their cause is always being used as a weapon of war by any power in Afghanistan, I would say. If it's a leftist power, they try to, you know, show that they are empowering women, that they, you know, that they are supporting women. If it's a very, very right power like the Taliban extreme ideology, they also try to suppress women and that way maintain their power. Unfortunately, women rights in Afghanistan has been used as a weapon of conflict and war. And we have paid, um, you know, not only the direct price for being the tool of the, the collateral damage of war, but also a tool of war. So, yes, I have had uh, secret schools and it's sad to see that I still continue to have those schools now. And in fact, last week, my colleagues who ran those schools in Afghanistan, that I support them, were arrested. And today I am lucky that um, they were released. And today is like a happy day because they just texted me that they were released and their guarantee. So they were arrested just for providing education for 2,000 girls in different provinces in Afghanistan. I mean, education is not a crime, right? Um, but I don't know why certain people are so scared of an educated woman. They are widespread. The, the secret schools are widespread. But unfortunately, the women of Afghanistan do not deserve to go to secret school and have education as a secret. Education is a basic principle in Islam of women's rights in any religion, I think. And why are, you know, these radicalized uh, groups using religion as a means of imposing their restrictions on women? So they are in Afghanistan, but they are not, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the best choice, I would say. We need to really pursue the Taliban to respect their commitments to allow women to go to school, formal school, as, as the country needs scientists, needs doctors, needs, um, you know, teachers. And this is like undeniable fact that in 21st century, Every gender needs to pursue education and be empowered. Absolutely. And none of this is, of course, happening in a vacuum. Afghanistan has experienced war and extreme poverty for many decades. Torun, all of the bottom 20 countries on this year's index have experienced armed conflicts between 2021 and 2022. In most of these countries, more than half of women live in close proximity to conflict. I'm thinking in particular about Palestinian women and girls right now and what they're going through. Palestine ranks in the bottom quarter in the index. But more broadly, what does the index tell us about how conflict and war impact women's well-being? Well, first of all, of course, conflict and war pose a direct threat to the lives of, of women and girls. As we can clearly see it in places like uh, like you mentioned, Gaza, and but also in, in Ukraine. Uh, but conflict and war also impact the women's well-being in so many additional ways. And what we know from research is that armed conflict increases, for instance, the levels of maternal death, uh, since women have to go through pregnancies and birth giving without uh, medical assistance. 
We know that it also increases the risk of gender-based violence, including rape, and leads to disproportionate levels of school dropouts for girls. So living in close proximity to war and conflict simply means that women's immediate safety is under threat, as well as women's long-term prosperity and, and opportunities. And knowing this, it is then quite worrying to find that in 2022, approximately 600 million women, meaning 15% of women in the world, lived within 50 kilometers of armed conflict. And this is more than the double of the levels of the 1990s. So this is really, really worrying. And of course, we sit here in Norway, where all five Nordic countries rank among the top seven on the index. So Torun, what would you say is the key to success? What lessons can be drawn from these nations? Well, if we look at the Nordic countries, I think what is is quite striking is how stable they are in terms of being ranked among the top countries for years and years. And not only on this index, but all sorts of index measuring women's um, empowerment and, and gender equality. And we can see that they are performing really well across all these three dimensions and 13 indicators that I was uh, referring to a little bit earlier here. And I think it shows that all good things come together in a way, that it reinforces um, one another. And it tells us also something about how these countries systematically for decades have been investing in the status uh, of women. And many scholars researching gender equality policies in, in the Nordic countries argue that the foremost, most important key to the success of the Nordic countries is the moment when women was included in the workforce. Because what we know is that when women become economically independent, then they also become empowered socially and politically. So I think this is a key aspect of the Nordic countries. And of course, in addition to that, we have the fact that it's a stable, uh, secure region. We haven't been in war since uh, the Second World War. But also, and I think this is quite important and something we see now in Afghanistan, the role of civil society, women's organizations uh, as a lobby group. Mm. Uh, civil society has been very strong in the Nordic countries and the states have provided a safe space for civil society and for activism. And I think this has been really key to developing uh, these gender equal societies with a lot of, of good policies for, for women's status. Right. And, and Torun, as we wrap this episode, and in the spirit of the previous question about the key to success, I wanted to ask you what difference such an index can make, if any difference at all. Well, this index has been developed in partnership with our colleagues at the Georgetown Institute for, for Women, Peace and Security. And uh, our partners there and as well as the researchers here at PRIA, we are concerned about producing research-based knowledge that can contribute to you know, improving policymaking and decision-making. So I hope that this index can contribute to that. I think this index makes a really strong case for how important it is to link together these dimensions that I was talking about. Inclusion, justice and security, if we want to succeed in building safe and prosperous societies. So uh, I think this index can be used as a tool in different ways for policymakers to identify, you know, where are the needs, where must we invest. For researchers, I think this index can be used to study trends. For journalists, it can be used to provide context to your stories. Mm -hmm. And for civil society, it can be used to hold states accountable. Mm. And Fozia, last question is to you. You have lived through two takeovers of the Taliban, 
the first one in 1996 when you were a first-year medical student in Kabul University, and a second takeover in 2021 with the withdrawal of U.S. troops. I want to ask you, what's your hope for the future? Can there be a future for Afghanistan without the Taliban? Uh, I remember in the first round when the Taliban were in power, Kabul was like a, Kabul is a very um, crowded city. It's a very lively city. But then, because many people left the country, uh, you could hardly see any cars in the street. But people were still hopeful. You know, I think we are more hopeful now. And my hope comes from the people that are very transformed, from the women who actually continue to resist uh, the repression and continue to demonstrate that they, they exist and that nobody, no government, no power could actually ignore their existence. The civil society that despite all the, you know, the tough environment, they continue to operate. The teachers that I referred to before, that they go to prison and the moment they're released from prison, they contact me and they say, oh, so what is the plan for tomorrow? And I'm like, salute to you. You were just released from prison, but you contact me and you want me to, you know, support you for your education program for tomorrow. So that is like the hope um, to me and to Afghanistan. Now, in terms of your question, whether there could be a future without Taliban, I think Taliban should really understand the fact that Afghanistan is transformed. If they want to be part of a transformed uh, society, they need to adjust their policy. I think there are many also foot soldiers of Taliban that are transformed. You know, when I was in Kabul under house arrest, some of the Taliban security were at my gate. And when I was going from one place to the other, they would usually accompany me. And I could see those young Taliban sitting in my car for security so that I don't, I make, they make sure that I stay and I don't run away. Uh, they were like looking at um, universities and at uh, the windows because they just came from the mountains and from their cages. They were looking out in the streets of Kabul, looking at the university schools, uh, TV stations, all the progress that was made in Afghanistan. And they, and they wanted, I could see from their faces that they wanted to be part of this progress. So I think the Taliban leadership, those who actually hold... 35 million plus people hostage. They need to realize that if they want to be part of the uh, you know, future uh, and if they want to walk side by side with people of Afghanistan, they need to adjust based on what the people of Afghanistan want. They need to transform their policies. They need to open up because no other government in the world repress women and their population to the extent that the Taliban do. Uh, as Tarun mentioned, it's not only about social or political rights. It's about the economy of Afghanistan. It's about security of our, our country. Over the last two and a half years or more uh, than two years that the Taliban um, denied women from workspace, there is a $3 billion deficit to our economy. It has imp impacted our economy by $3 billion. Um, and, and it's in a situation that Afghanistan is a poor country. The people are like, as, as mentioned before, suffering from poverty. Almost 90% of the population are under poverty line based on a credible report. So it's not only about women rights. Now, they need to adopt. And I think uh, for the future, Taliban should be part of a political setup where people have a say. Once you refer to the people and you allow people to be part of the process, I think people will not make a mistake. They know who to choose. So I think without Taliban, no, we don't want to go to a vicious circle of war and conflict. But Taliban also need to realize that it's a transformed Afghanistan and adopt based on that. Hmm. A clear message to the Taliban then. Adapt, Afghanistan has changed and there is no way back. Fozia, Torun, 
Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. The Women, Peace and Security Index is available now to download on prio.org and the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security webpage. This episode was produced by Arno Siad and edited by Brage Pedersen, with sound from the World Food Programme.